And I think what's really important is that what the provider sees when they're making a referral and what the patient sees when they're going to their health plan website and what the health plan knows about their doctors should all be the same. And today it's not. There's so many different nodes of information. There's so much noise flying around that it's really hard to keep track of all of it. And it causes a lot of waste in our healthcare system. But most importantly, it causes a lot of patient pain and suffering because patients get tossed around the system not really knowing where to go. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. A running theme on our podcast is how health technology can best improve the patient experience. At Ribbon Health, Nate Maslach brings a one-size-fits-all solution to the table, increasing patient access to information. Cost, quality, and availability are just some of the factors influencing patients' everyday healthcare decisions that remain widely unavailable in the system. By providing patients with easier and quicker access to this question, Nate is beginning to see better informed patient decisions. In this episode, we discuss how heightened access to information not only benefit patients, but the entire healthcare system as well. We also touch on Nate's journey into healthcare and the importance of establishing values within startups. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Nate. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. And I'm so excited to have you. Um, I always like to start with the question on how you get where you are today. What's your journey and what excites you to be in healthcare and the starting a company? Yeah. Um, so I was, I was born in Russia and I moved to the U.S. when I was eight years old. Um, so I grew up in the Cleveland area and I was there until I went to college in St. Louis. And I think that was really the beginning of what ended up leading us to Ribbon. Um, I went to WashU, which is a school well known for its healthcare programs and its pre-med program. And I was not pre-med. I was actually in the business school and I was studying economics. Um, But I took a class in healthcare economics purely out of curiosity. And it broke all of the rules that we were learning in economics. Marketplaces didn't work. People behave irrationally. You couldn't predict behavior. And I was really fascinated by that. So I kept taking classes there and a little inadvertently ended up um, getting a second major in healthcare management. And that led me to spend more time in healthcare. So when I graduated college, I joined McKinsey and Company in a generalist strategy consulting role, but because I had had what I would call a less than minimal amount of experience in healthcare, um, but still some nod to an interest there, I ended up doing more and more work with healthcare clients. So spent a lot of time working with large health plans and hospitals and provider groups. The coolest project was actually helping to rebuild the payment structure for the Medicaid program in the state of Arkansas. And that was really eye-opening because I was able to see how these decisions get made. And my focus was on thinking about how we can better pay for care to incentivize better care for people with really acute um, behavioral health conditions and really with a primary focus on schizophrenia because it's a really, really hard condition to manage and it's expensive. But when done right, the outcomes can be pretty incredible. 
And I was incredibly inspired by the mission and simultaneously was really frustrated by how hard it was to actually do that work. And it required a lot of data analytics and being able to process large data sets quickly. And I saw the human impact of doing that well or not doing that well. And so I wanted to leave consulting. I actually go to a tech company where I could see how do we use data and analytics to drive behavior? And there weren't a lot of healthcare companies doing that at the time, maybe not any. Um, but ad tech, advertising was really good at it. And so I joined a predictive analytics company in the advertising space. And we were incredible at seeing how you can drive behavior by basically being able to understand what do people purchase in stores? And how do you target online ads off of that? And for me, I always knew that there was something there that I wanted to take back into healthcare, um, but also wanted to just learn. So I joined a company called Data Logics right after our Series A, and we eventually took that to an acquisition by Oracle. And so not only did I get a chance to learn how to build products and technology that leverage data to actually influence what happens in the real world, um, but I think inadvertently at the time, but really the luckiest lesson here was how you build a company. I was lucky enough to work with some incredible, incredible leaders, some of whom I'm still in very close touch with. Some of them are investors in Vivint today and can very credibly say we wouldn't be here without them. Um, so after that acquisition, I went to business school to try to figure out what to do next. I didn't really have a clear thesis on how I would spend that time, um, but was lucky enough to meet my co-founder there. And that's actually when we started Ribbon. So that's that's a long way of saying that it was a series of very fortunate events and being in the right place in the right time over and over um, that created a lot of opportunities that then led to to what became Ribbon Health. That's interesting that you kind of have the interest on doing the healthcare and then look at the opportunity in the ed tech and somehow leverage that experience, knowing at that time that you want to be in healthcare, yet you still pursue that ed tech. Uh, opportunity. Yep. Uh, you mentioned, I, I, I'm going to ask you uh, later on, but then I want to touch upon your comment about healthcare, what you learn in healthcare is defying what you learn in economics. Tell us more about that, because I think that's very really interesting for people, especially who are not in the US, I think, to know. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not going to pretend to be an economics expert with my four years of undergraduate studies. But if I remember correctly, a lot of the premise of economics is that people operate rationally in market conditions. And healthcare in the US doesn't really operate like a true market, though personally, I believe it should. And that's something that, that we have Ribbon spent our time focusing on. And to me, the biggest blocker to healthcare operating like a true market is that we do not have access to the information that you need at a given moment in time to make the right decision. So when I compare a you know closer to perfect market, let's use Amazon as a really good example. I can go on, I can search for a product, and I can see different products that potentially fit that need or the problem that I have, and I see their price point. And then I have an ability to decide what I'm going to buy. And a lot of that is based on price, their reviews, maybe there's some way of being able to assess quality. And if I'm looking to buy a paper towel holder, um, the reviews are very helpful because it, some people say, this paper towel holder broke. And I'm like, well, that's a low-quality product if a lot of people send that. And another one where people say, this one is amazing. And then I can look at the price. 
I can make a decision. I can decide how quickly I can access that. Is it available on Prime two-day shipping or is it going to take a week? So I'm making all these decisions very quickly as a consumer. And people are doing that all the time. And in healthcare, that information doesn't exist. When I think about the search for care, um, at least in a life before Ribbon, it's really hard to understand is this doctor available? Are they accessible? Are they nearby? I mean, we don't even know the right addresses for doctors. Um, and that's one of the problems that everybody wants to solve. Um, never mind, is this a cost-effective provider? Or is this a high-quality provider for the thing that I need? There's so many barriers to information in healthcare. And that's I'm just talking about the provider data problem, but you see this across the many different aspects of, of how healthcare decisions are made. And so it's an imperfect market. And it has a lot of negative externalities, and it leads to what I think folks have called irrational behavior. And one of the tropes that I personally can't stand is when people say, well, consumers don't know how to shop for care. Like, one of my life's missions is to prove every single person who says that wrong. Of course we don't. When I... I've lived in New York for 10 years, and I know how to navigate the city. I know how to get home. But if you come to my house, blindfold me, put noise-canceling headphones on me, and drop me off somewhere in the city, you don't tell me where I am, and you don't take off the blindfolds or the headphones, I'm not going to know how to get home. And then somebody can say, well, Nate doesn't know how to navigate New York. No, I don't know how to navigate New York without any information. And yet, when we look at how patients make their care decisions, we expect them to know what to do without any access to information. And so... What Ribbon hopes to do is to power every care decision to be accessible, affordable, and high quality to break down those market negative externalities and allow people to actually make the right decision for them. How does your company allow that to happen for Ribbon Health? Because a lot of the information are with health. Yep. And how do you make that available for your customer? Yeah, that that's our job. So happy to get into the how. I think one one thing before I jump into the how, if it's okay, is um, a really interesting insight that we had like off the bat, which is that not no one person kind of has the same healthcare journey as anybody else. And that makes it harder to be able to build products, um, especially technical products that you hope are able to scale. Um, maybe this makes me not a very good party guest, but one of my favorite things to do is to ask 10 people at a party, like, what did you do the last time you got sick? And even in the same place, meaning that most people have at least something in common and that they're all in the same physical location together, everybody has a different journey. And then you take that broader and broader. And I'm of the belief that basically everybody in the US and probably in the world thinks about their care a little bit differently. And so our job is to make sure that wherever, whenever anybody is making a care decision, they have access to the information that they need to make the right decision for their personal journey. Not tell them what to do, but give them access so they can decide what to do. And so the way that Ribbon is able to do that is by living behind the scenes of wherever these care decisions are already being made. Our customers include health insurance companies, they include provider groups and hospital systems, they include direct-to-consumer find-a-doctor portals, Again, wherever these care decisions are being made, we want Ribbon to be there. And our job is to power them with information on, in our case, providers or doctors, the care delivery node. Um, so we focus first on the foundational pieces. Who is this doctor? Where do they practice? What's their phone number so you can reach them? Today, over 50% of provider directories just for phone numbers and addresses are wrong. And that's a huge barrier to access to care. 
On top of that, we layer on which insurance plans a given doctor accepts. Then we layer on cost effectiveness and objective quality indicators, and most recently, price transparency. So we think about this as how do you give all the information that you need wherever that person is going for their highly personalized care journey. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned for Ribbon Health, your customer is the payers, the providers, and also the patients? Correct, yeah. So the providers pay ribbons to improve their efficiency to get patients to their hospital or their clinic? Potentially, and also potentially out of their clinic or out of their hospital. So to me, when I think about the value prop to an enterprise, ultimately, it all comes back to helping somebody find care. So mm-hmm. if we could be defined as anything, it's the, it's the company that helps people find care. Mm. How you get there is very hard because there are so many places where you need accurate information to make sure that at the end of the day, that like magic moment of, I don't know what to do to, I just booked an appointment with the perfect doctor for me happens. And so when it's with a provider, providers call it a referral moment. Uh, health plan calls it steerage. Uh, digital health solution calls it navigation, but it's all the same problem. Somebody needs to know what to do and they need access to information to figure that out. And so when we work with providers, we plug into their existing referral workflows. One of my big things is let's not create more new workflows. Let's integrate where those decisions are already being made. And within that, we provide the accurate information on where to refer. So when a provider says, hey, Nate, you need to see a cardiologist, instead of them telling me to go talk to their referral coordinator, who then is either going to do a lot of manual work, or they might just have like one or two cardiologists that typically refer to whether they're right for me or not, they're able to, in real time, see who are the cardiologists who accept Nate's insurance plan, Mm. maybe are located near Nate's home, based on all the information that they already have about me, who are cost-effective, who do the procedure that Nate needs, who have great outcomes in that procedure for Nate, and who will cost about X. And then actually even being able to then send that referral through. So on average, in a high-stakes um, value-based setting or just a general like high focus on outcome setting, it takes about 45 minutes to an hour to make a referral all the way through, right? You think about all the things that happen to make that referral. With Ribbon, it takes about two minutes. And we're looking to drive that even further down uh, because those last two minutes are actually getting that appointment. And so we want to automate that last mile as well. So do you think, so what you're saying that Ribbon will bypass, like now I'm thinking as a consumer, as uh, when I need the cardiologist, I need to meet with my primary care doc. And then I have to answer certain questions somehow mm-hmm. to convince the primary care doc that I will need to see cardiologist. And I know some patient uh, sometimes answers the question certain way so that they can get the referral because otherwise yep. mm, it's, a, it's almost like a game system that vision <laughs> <laughs> do because so you cannot get that referral. So is that what you're saying that better health can do is f- for a patient to bypass that process? I think it depends on the outcome and the use case. For me, there's a couple of ways that, that, you know, well, there are many ways that these fine care moments happen, but I think in these examples, there are a couple of ways you can imagine it. In one, it's actually the patient being able to have a conversation with their primary care doctor, the PCP saying like, yeah, you need a cardiologist. And, you know, here's the right one for you. Because I'll give you an example of when the last time I got referred out from my PCP to a gastroenterologist, I said, well, 
who's a good gastroenterologist for someone like me? And they said, here's the GI we refer to. And this GI specialized in women in their 70s. I know this because I, I looked up the provider in Riven. Women in their 70s with a condition I do not have. And they were about seven miles away, which in New York City might as well be like, you know, uh, 100 miles away. And so it was completely the wrong possible referral. And I just wouldn't have gone. The average patient just wouldn't go. They would just continue to suffer with that condition until it got so bad that they presented somewhere else. Maybe they found another GI. A lot of the time, they go to the emergency room. So that's one way that we can really help enhance that as a provider says, they should have said, here's the gastroenterologist for you. And the one that I found using Ribbon was a five-minute walk from my home, specialized exactly in people like me with my condition and had great outcomes for it. The other place is um, in a world in which somebody doesn't need the referral. And absolutely, I think that people should be able to go and identify the right cardiologist for them. Um, based on, again, their condition. Now, that presupposes that you've been diagnosed and you kind of understand what's wrong with you. And so I think there's a big need for high continuity of care and for somebody to be able to engage with their primary care provider in partnership. I really hope that we get away from scenarios where people go, you know, in the scenario that you, you explained, like, you know, kind of like having the answer key to get the referral. I think in a more efficient system, we shouldn't need that to happen. And I think part of that is actually making sure that people can get the right care for them. And so in this way that the ribbon is, the product is being installed at the, the provider side, or is this something that the payers allowing all their patient pop, uh, member population to have access? It's both. Ribbon? It's both. And I think it's really important that it's both um, because providers are critical in making care decisions. Like when I have a high stakes care decision, I, I'm arguably more more informed about navigating healthcare than I think the average person would be only because I've been you know, spending seven years of my life at Ribbon. Um, even then, I'm not a doctor. I know that I'm not um, understanding all of the other potential repercussions. And so I want to go see my PCP or my GI or whomever else to understand, like, what if I go here instead of there? What What's kind of what's the right way to engage there? And so I think it's really important that providers have this kind of available to them whenever. And their whole support staff, by the way, most referrals aren't made by the provider. They're made by the folks supporting that provider and actually getting the patient to that provider. Um, and then from the health plan side, there are a lot of ways that health plans can benefit from this. Um, one of them is that health plans are ingesting thousands of provider rosters from providers who are doing their best sending those rosters. But I've yet to meet a doctor who said, I got into medicine so I can make sure that my provider rosters are up to date. Um, and so typically, they like kind of send whatever they got, and then it's on the health plan to figure it out. Well, we automate that entire process for them. Uh, we can ingest over a 1,000 provider rosters at any given moment. And we make sense of it, we process it through the health plan system, and then it goes to wherever it needs to go. And sometimes it's to that network team so they can follow up with the provider and say, hey, we noticed you moved. Like, let's make sure you're, except like, let's make sure that the claims they're processing is a network at that location, which is better for the patient because you don't get those like surprise, questionable out of network bills. All the way through to the online doctor finder when somebody goes to, you know, healthplan.com slash find a doc. Uh, Ribbon can power and is powering that search as well with our API. And I think what's really important is that what the provider sees when they're making a referral and what the patient sees when they're going to their health plan website and what the health plan knows about their doctors 
should all be the same. And today it's not. There's so many different nodes of information. There's so much noise flying around that it's really hard to keep track of all of it. And it causes a lot of waste in our healthcare system. But most importantly, it causes a lot of patient pain and suffering because patients get tossed around the system not really knowing where to go. It's almost like when you explained it to me, it reminded me that I'm not trying to make it sound simple, but it sounded that what Ribbon Health is putting together is like amazing yellow pages for all the providers. Totally. I would love that. If that's all we're ever known for is being the best yellow pages for providers and knowing that everybody is reading the yellow pages, absolutely. Like that is that is a dream. And if we can all go to bed at night at Ribbon knowing that wherever a patient is going to find care, that they can do that, wherever that's going to be, like I would say that we, we would have hit on our mission. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're many, many years away from getting there and a lot more work to do to get there. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So my other question, as you said that earlier on about being dropped off in, New- in the middle of New York City, blindfolded, and in healthcare, there's a lot of missing information that's not available. And I think sometimes being a skeptic, you feel like, well, they are hidden for the reason to benefit a certain group. And how yep. do you break that? Yeah, I think there's there's two problems I, I tend to think about for why this information isn't so readily available. And one of them is it's hidden because there are perverse incentives. And then the other, it's hidden just because it's hard to unhide. Like we've just evolved as an ecosystem and as an industry for a long time. And a lot of decisions were made 40 years ago that led us to where we are today. No one really even understands why we made them anymore. And so I'll, I'll break those two down. On the, um, on the latter piece first, like why are providers' addresses wrong in health plan websites? Who does that benefit? It doesn't benefit the patient who shows up at a bank instead of the doctor's office, like literally stories we've heard. It doesn't benefit the doctor who has an appointment with the patient and the patient's not there and then the patient's a no-show and the provider's sitting there with an open slot. It doesn't benefit the health plan because people are delaying care, which leads to much higher costs and it actually has a direct impact on their medical loss ratio. So it's not benefiting anybody. There's no, there's nobody who's making money here. There's nobody who's getting better care. Um, it's, it's because it's a very complex problem without a kind of a set of governance around it. So the average provider accepts over 80 health plans. The average health plan has hundreds of thousands of providers in their network. And so you have so many different nodes of information and no real centralized way of processing that. And so Ribbon sits at the middle of all of this. We ingest sources on providers from thousands of different places. We're making sense of that. And then we distribute that back out because it's not a provider's job to update information every single day. A provider's job is to treat patients. A health plan's job is to pay for care. And yet they all have had to take on this job 
And I think that that's unfair. And there should be somebody who's specializing in doing that. And that's where Vivint is. Now, getting into some of the potentially perverse incentives, there are absolutely places where we don't want perfect information exposed in healthcare. Not when I say we, not, not Vivint. There are absolutely places where there are actors in the ecosystem that don't want information. And that is the job of a regulator to be able to fix those perverse incentives. And I think the price transparency ruling has been a really good example of that and ultimately ends up being, in my view, a big net positive for our healthcare ecosystem. And in a more efficient market, I think actually will benefit the best actors in that, both on the provider and the health plan side. So we can debate on who does it hurt more, who likes it better, who like, like you know, it depends who you ask on which day. But at the end of the day, if patients have perfect information to how much a good costs, how much their healthcare services cost, and they're able to ascertain if that's the right care for them, hopefully in partnership with their doctors, they end up in a better place and the best doctors will win, which hopefully raises the bar for quality. The best health plans will win, which hopefully further raises the bar for payment efficiency. And instead of competing on who can hide information best, we can compete on who actually delivers the best healthcare and who delivers the best services for those patients. And at the end of the day, the patient should be winning, no one else. Yeah, I think that that is, uh, everybody went into healthcare with that in mind. And I hope one day we'll get there. <laughs> with, with everybody who comes on your podcast working as hard as they are, I, I hope we will. Yeah, so I want to shift gear to our conversation about you starting the company. You You, you said that, based on your prior experience uh, before you went to business school that helped you to understand how to build a company. Tell us more about that experience, what you learned and how do you apply it to what you're doing now? Mm -hmm. So there were a couple really important broader learnings. One was around the impact that technology, when built in a thoughtful way, can really have on behavior. Um, but to me, actually, the more impactful, the more surprising learning was the importance of mission, vision, and values in company building. And this was at a time where it wasn't quite as prominent to have um, you know, company values on a website, the company mission on a website. And I think a lot of my peers and colleagues from other even startups would kind of roll their eyes at that as like the soft stuff that doesn't matter, right? Like it doesn't drive outcomes, so who cares? And what I saw is actually that it absolutely drives outcomes and it creates a much better work environment, a place to work with people who are really motivated. And that means you can take on harder problems. And so we brought that back to Ribbon. So when I was at Datalogix, we would actually go through our values at our company all hands. And our CEO, Eric Rosa, who's still a mentor and an incredible leader, would talk about the problems that we were having as a company, um, in addition to just the things that we were going well and led from a place of empathy and authenticity. And it was, it was, I hadn't seen that form of leadership before and so public. And it taught me a lot by, you know, what we were hoping to do. And so when we, when my co-founder, uh, Nate, also named Nate, and I decided to, to kind of move forward with the first iteration of Ribbon, Long before we incorporated, wrote a line of code, um, did anything, we knew that we had to be able to articulate what our company values would be because we wanted to build a company that we would be proud to work at and that the people that we loved would be proud to work at. So we went through this like really painful exercise where we wrote down 
probably over a thousand different value statements that we believed in. And then we started trying to pluck them out and asking if these seven weren't here, would the behavior change? No? Okay, great. They're redundant. Um, and we got to our six values, which in our view, were working really well together to hopefully drive the kind of decisions that we were hoping our company would make, even when we weren't in the room. And I'm so glad we did that. These six values have been the same six values since like literally before we started. And I can point to moments and decisions that we've made that otherwise would have been really hard to make. And I think we would have been tempted to make the wrong call um, had we not had those. And by the way, that's not just because it like feels good or that I think we're more self-righteous or better than anybody else. It, it, that, that's not the case. It doesn't come from a place of judgment. It's more that these six values are the right values for us at Ribbon with the mission that we're trying to achieve. And by the way, it drives outcomes. Our values are hopefully geared towards a really teamwork-oriented approach towards a company that values creativity and really challenges ourselves to run towards extremely challenging problems in healthcare and does so in a way that can take a long-term outlook. And I think that if any one of these six values goes away, like we're not going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And what are the six values? So our six values are run toward hard problems, put your team first, do what you say, stay hungry, keep improving, practice habits of excellence, and build with empathy. And can you share with us one example where you were in a crossroad when you have to make a difficult decision and then you look back at the values and then you have to turn down certain opportunity? Definitely. There's one that comes to mind. And the reason it comes to mind is because I wasn't the one who made the decision, which meant that the values were scaling. Uh, So one of our values is build with empathy, uh, which in short is when faced with a difficult decision, we do what's best for users' lives. And when we think about the user, we think about the, the person who's sick, who's vulnerable, who's laying in bed trying to figure out what to do. And how do we make that moment less painful for them when it's already so painful? And we were working on, I won't say names, um, but we were working on a really important strategic channel partnership. Um, it was a large company that if, if we got it right, would have opened us up to, I think, a pretty important long-term revenue stream. And the focus was, can we effectively help enable and empower uh, network development and network analytics use cases to help evaluate at an aggregate level the networks of providers, either at a hospital system or a geography level, who was the most high quality, who was most cost effective, and what were the referral packs? So you can actually say that like a patient ends up in the right place. And the ultimate user for this would have been a large hospital system. And as we kept going deeper and deeper um, into this use case, we got more excited about it. We built a lot of prototypes and we got to the final signing meeting. And in the signing meeting, what we started to tease apart was like cost-effectiveness part, less relevant, the quality part, less relevant. Actually, the, the new focus was around volume and in particular, leakage. How do you avoid leakage in a hospital system? And we were going through this conversation and my Slack DMs for my team blew up in that moment. And it was folks from Ribbon who were heavily financially incentivized to get this thing done. We're like, we can't do this. This violates build with empathy. This ultimately is going to be a net negative for the patient. If there was no repercussions or thoughtfulness about cost or quality, how do we know that patients are actually like getting referred to the right place? And 
in my head, you know, I was having the same concerns and I, I didn't feel comfortable moving forward with that. And we as a company really avoid anything that touches um, leakage um, when it's forced for the patient. And it was really cool to see the team actually be the ones to tell me like, hey, we're not working on this. So can you please, can you please politely say no? And that's what we did. And we walked away from the deal and the channel partnership, which is a really hard decision. Um, but what I will say is that we have even believed that ultimately... We have to build towards a world which is going to be better for the patient and that the financial incentives are moving in that direction as well. And so if we allocated our very small precious resources to helping avoid leakage, we'd have to move that away from being able to power referrals for value-based care organizations where the patient gets routed and presumably and hopefully the better place for them. And so again, I, I'm not here saying that like leakage is better or worse. I, I don't take like a holier than that perspective on that. Um, I do think that for this company and our strategy and our focus, our values actually guided us towards that long-term view. And we felt very comfortable moving in that direction. It's great that you have that value as your compass. How do you, I'm sure your board meeting, your investor will question that decision. We we actually took it to the board uh, long before the board meeting. We said this is a decision that we recommend making, and the case was a pretty simple one for us and for them. Long term, we believe that leakage products end up being a commoditized good, and it's not something that we as Ribbon think is a good business decision long term to go after. We're lucky in that we have an incredible set of investors that also take a very long term view. And so they're certainly in it to generate returns for their shareholders, as are we. And I think it's important to remember, we are a for-profit, venture-backed company. We at Ribbon fundamentally believe that the way to maximize the shareholder value for our investors is to focus on what's going to be more long-term accretive. And so that was the argument, and our investors agreed. And our investors run massive funds with highly long-term outlooks. And so for them... Eking out an extra like couple of percent that's gonna like you know kill off our strategic ability to transform how healthcare operates. That's not a hard decision to make either. And so we have to make sure that our values are aligned to those long-term financial goals. And in our case, I think they are. Mm-hmm. So if I know we are short on time. Um, I want to ask our my last question: um, What mistakes that you've made throughout this journey that till this day you still remember? that you tell yourself that this is... I mean, we all make mistakes along the way, but there's some mistake that you just... Indelible. (laughs) Yeah, it probably depends on the day um, because I probably repeat many of these mistakes in some iteration or another on a daily basis. Um, There's one that really comes to mind for me early on, which was around not listening to the data that was in front of us because of how it might be effectively potentially perceived or how like our action might be kind of in in opposition to how the rest of the market was was thinking about the world. And that was a big mistake that really hurt the company for a long time. So when we were a team of five people, we raised our Series A. I think we were seven people by the time it closed. So we were small and we needed to scale up to about 40 or 50 people. And the only way that that worked is if we built out a recruiting team first. Um, so we like ran the numbers, built the model. We probably needed like two or three recruiters to get us there at a reasonable pace. And I looked at that. I was like, we would be a 10 person company that is 30% recruiters. 
And that like doesn't make sense if you compare that to like what is the typical balance sheet of a company. And so we didn't hire three recruiters and we like trudged our way to the hiring goals that we had and we got there. But the cost was to the team who, um, in addition to the things that they were doing, building, selling, were also recruiting. And I do believe like recruiting is everybody's job, especially in an early stage company. But they had no support. And ultimately, this one decision I made, which I didn't even really think about that much at the time, and they were having consequential and like pretty negative outcomes on the productivity and the lifestyle of, of the team that was trusting me to make a better decision. And so that was... We're a data company. I'm a data-driven person. And that was a really big wake-up call for me to remember how easy it is to kind of ignore important data Especially when it goes in the face of how, like, you know, we might perceive something to be like the right way or the more normal way to do something. But I think at the same time, when you're saying that, is because you have certain ideas that majority of the company should not be the recruiter, even though you have the data that shows that might be. It's almost like you have certain preconceived uh, notion that this should not be happening. And then there's that data. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's almost like you don't want to... The perception sometimes can be stronger than what the data is. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a word for it and it's called bias. Uh, (laughs) And and it was just a stupid decision driven by a bias of how things should be versus how things work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. uh, Thank you for sharing that uh, insight. I'll try to remember that for myself as well. <laughs> yeah, and, and you should interview the rest of the team because I'll probably give you another hundred examples of mistakes that I've made. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if we never make a mistake, we never do anything, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you sharing with us your journey and your insight. And uh, looking forward to see all the amazing success that you work on at Driven Health. Thanks for having me be a part of this. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.